Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This week, the government presented to Parliament its EU withdrawal bill, the so-called repeal bill that paves the way for Brexit by transferring European law onto the domestic statute book. It will receive a second reading in the Commons on Monday. Theresa May, the Prime Minister, cannot count on the undivided support of all Conservative MPs for the bill. Writing in the FT this week, Dominic Grieve, the former Attorney General, argued that the bill gives ministers excessive powers, known as Henry VIII powers, to rewrite laws without consulting Parliament. Mr Grieve wrote... The electorate did not vote to take back control to see our domestic constitution dismantled. George Parker, you wrote this week that Mrs May faces a backlash within her own party over the repeal bill. How significant is the Tory opposition to the bill, or at least Henry VIII powers that Mr Grieve was complaining about? Well, I think it's important to separate out those two things, that the Conservative Party, I think, will vote unanimously. Even people like Anna Soubry and Ken Clark will vote for the second reading of this bill on Monday. I think they all agree that this bill is necessary to enact the departure from the European Union. But then the tricky bit comes with the committee stage, which we expect sometime in October, where there are a lot of people concerned on all sides of the House. You've mentioned Dominic Grieve, but many others, constitutionalists, as well as just the soft Brexiteers, if you like, who say that this power hands over excessive executive control to ministers. And David will talk about this in a minute, but there's Clause 9 of this bill, which basically allows ministers to do virtually anything in relation to the bill. So there will be trouble ahead. I was speaking to someone from the government this morning who said that there will be negotiations with the potential rebels, and I think we'll see quite a lot of movement in the next few weeks to assure them that these powers that they're hoping to grant themselves won't be used in a way which is seen to be totally undemocratic. And one of the ironies of this situation is that Mr Grieve, for example, is making an argument from parliamentary sovereignty that David Davis, the Brexit secretary, used to be particularly keen on. Yes, he was talking about that in the chamber on Thursday at the start of the debate, and he said... You may remember I used to be a champion of parliamentary democracy and I have not changed by one jot and there was a lot of mocking laughter on the other side. The truth of the matter is I suspect David Davis is sincere but he's been mugged by reality. The reality is that this bill will require ministers to be given this sweeping executive power otherwise Brexit isn't going to happen on time in March 2019. David Allen Green, Mr Grieve argued that the withdrawal bill allows for, and I'm quoting him, ministerial rule by decree, that's the Henry VIII powers, on any matter that could be connected to a failure of the incorporation of EU law to operate effectively. So first, perhaps you could explain just what Henry VIII powers are, and then tell us if you think Mr Grieve and others, including the Labour opposition, are right to be worried. Yes, well, there is no question that a bill is needed. At the end of the two-year period under Article 50, or whenever Brexit takes effect, the EU treaties will cease to have effect as a matter of international law, and so a whole range of legal areas in domestic UK law will suddenly disappear and others' parts will be rendered almost meaningless. So there has to be a bill of some kind. Anybody who accepts that Brexit's going to have to happen has to accept that there has to be a piece of legislation like this. It isn't the only Brexit bill. There will be other Brexit bills in particular areas like agriculture or the environment, but this is the framework bill. This is the bill which will allow ministers to do what is necessary domestically to try and make Brexit work. And it does so by doing two things. One thing is to try and place 
all of EU law, with a couple of exceptions, into domestic UK law. Almost like a sort of grand copy and pasting, although it will certainly not be that easy. The other thing is the bill creates three powers, not just one, three discretionary powers, three Henry VIII powers to ministers. What that means is that a minister can, by regulation, do or not do things which have the same effect as Acts of Parliament. The actual wording which is used in each of the three powers, regulations under this section may make any provision which could be made by an Act of Parliament. That wording is highly significant. What can you do by an Act of Parliament? Well, it's almost limitless. You can repeal other Acts of Parliament. You can abolish areas of law. You can amend other Acts of Parliament. You can create new rights and entitlements. There is almost no conceptual limit to what you can do under this power. This bill creates three such powers. The one which George mentioned, which is anything in pursuance of the withdrawal agreement. There's a second one to do anything which needs to be done because of any international agreements the UK may or may not be a member of. And there's the third one, which Dominic Grieve mentioned in the quote you've just given, which is to try and make EU law work. Each of these three broad powers are, in the government's view, necessary. And they have a point. There's no way we can get done what needs to be done in two years without some discretionary powers, just not enough time. The question is, is whether these powers are to ride. George, that's quite an alarming <laughs> picture that David has painted there. That alarm is quite widely shared across the House, is it? It is. The facts in relation to the withdrawal, but you could have ministers able, for example, something Labour were particularly concerned about, you could change the law relating to Labour protection or environmental standards or, as David said, almost anything. So I think the compromise here has got to be around the necessity to have these kinds of powers to make the whole thing work and some sort of trigger mechanism, I think Anna Subri called a triage system, where you can identify a point where the government appears to be doing something really quite draconian, where Parliament can say, hang on a sec, we need to have proper scrutiny of this. Now, I mean, there is theoretically some scrutiny of these so-called powers, you know, a debate lasting an hour and a half, but they can't be amended, so not really proper parliamentary scrutiny. I think they're going to have to have some kind of trigger mechanism where Parliament can intervene. There are other legal complexities in the bill, David, aside from the worry about the latitude it gives to ministerial discretion, aren't there? Particularly where Brexit and devolved powers are concerned, for example. You've described the bill in a blog this week as a monster. This is quite a monster, and to allude to Game of Thrones, it's a monster which is given three dragon's eggs. Each of the three powers which are created here are, are not like some sort of Russian dolls which are smaller powers than the powers of... Each of these powers are as powerful as an act of parliament themselves. The only safeguard of any note within the bill is that each of the three powers has a sunset clause. The powers to put into effect the withdrawal agreement comes to an end at the date of the exit day. The other ones have a sort of two-year long stop. But other than that, there's no real restraints on this. And the question is, is what happens if something is done under this legislation which people find unacceptable or undemocratic or whatever, the only way you could challenge any of these is by going to court. But the way the powers are drafted in this bill, it may well be that they survive court challenge. So in other words, you're essentially giving blank legislation to ministers to do with what they want. George, sounds as though the government's best argument for giving ministers these discretionary powers is that time is running out in the whole Article 50 process. Yeah, well, I mean, this is something that, that we've been constantly reminded of by Michel Barnier over in Brussels, the clock's ticking, and this is the reality we face. The bill will have to be enacted, and then, this is the key point that people are worried about, and the thing David was alluding to, the Withdrawal Act bill will become the Withdrawal Act, and it's that gap, 
and it could be quite a short gap of just a few months between the bill being enacted and the final deal being concluded in Brussels that creates the problems for the government because then the government's got to move extremely quickly to get all that done before the exit day in March 2019. So time is incredibly short and we're only just beginning to get a glimpse of the legislative nightmare that Brexit is going to present. At Westminster, and one thing I would say is that I spoke to a number of Tory MPs who came back after the summer break and a number of them said, Brexit is so boring. And the fact is, yes, it is quite boring in that sense. And they're going to be up all night going through this bill on the committee stage. They're going to be Labour Party ambushes. The morale and the will to govern of the Conservative Party will be sapped by Brexit because they will be running whip votes into the early hours on a subject the majority of Conservative MPs don't agree on, Brexit, and swamping everything else that this government could be doing in terms of a domestic agenda. Brexit might be boring, David, but it's a boon for people like you. Yes, I think Brexit has been very good for Brexit commentators. The and one, lawyers. The one thing which needs to be noted is that the exit negotiations and this bill have to go in parallel. So the government has essentially set out two high wires, two tightropes, which it has to go at the same time and ending at the same place. Even one of those endeavours would be difficult enough. But to try and do both at the same time with one small new government department when a lot of the stuff here just is not clear. So, for example, the other part of this bill is to try and place EU law as part of domestic law, which sounds easy enough when you say it in a very high-level way. But when you try and get down to what this actually means, the bill comes up with about five or six different definitions of retained EU law. Because EU law is complex. This is not a grand copy and pasting job. And I don't even think it works then. An eminent professor of EU law is actually treated saying there's clauses in this bill he does not understand. <laughs> and it's a fair point. To assume that this actually will succeed in its intention is an assumption which may not be safe. George, the obstacles to this whole process are not just procedural and juridical, are they? They're political, as you alluded to just now. And discontent inside the Conservative Party is not restricted to the provisions of the withdrawal bill, is it? You've written this week, for example, about scepticism among Tory MPs about Theresa May's attempts to relaunch her premiership. I mean, is there a sense that she's on borrowed time here? I think she's definitely on borrowed time. And the withdrawal bill, we've been talking about it in a fairly technical way, but as David mentioned earlier, there are a whole load of bills which will test the result of the Conservative Party coming down the track, whether it's customs or a new immigration system, a new replacement for the common agricultural policy. All of those things are going to be blockbuster bills which will strain unity in the Conservative Party. And then beyond that, there are a number of Conservative MPs coming back after their summer holidays, having heard Theresa May saying that she hoped to fight the next general election. Now, to be honest, I take that with a bit of a pinch of salt, and I think most Tory MPs do. What else was she going to say? I think most Conservative MPs would say that Theresa May's time will elapse as Prime Minister in March 2019, whatever she might say on a plane load of journalists out to Japan. The next big set piece she has coming up is this speech on the 21st of September, I think it mm. is, where she will make a big speech on Brexit. Our colleague Sebastian Payne has suggested this will be what he calls Lancaster House 2.0, a warmed-over version mm. of the big set piece speech she gave on Brexit at the beginning of the year. Can we expect anything new, do you think? Well, there's lots of downplaying of expectations about this long-awaited speech by Number 10, saying that, that Lancaster House is still the defining text of the government's position, and this is an evolution of that, so don't expect a great departure. I think it's going to be a really interesting speech, though, for a couple of reasons. One is, what is she going to say about the transition deal? Is she going to use this as the moment where Britain formally asks for a transition deal? It's been talked about before, never formally requested. The other thing is the juxtaposition of this speech, which might incidentally be delivered in continental Europe with the speech she has to make at the Conservative Party conference in Manchester within a couple of weeks. 
which I'm hearing will be a very red-blooded, stir-up-the-troops type speech, similar to the one she gave at the Tory conference last year. So you could have the situation where she's giving a, a more emollient speech on European soil just a couple of weeks before Europeans then hear her deliver a very much tougher message to her own party activists. So it's going to be interesting how she plays those two speeches. But I think she needs to, in the first speech, the one aimed at the European audience, move on to the transition deal because she needs to get that request in. If the transition deal is going to mean anything for British business trying to adapt to this, they need to get the transition deal and some certainty in place, I think, in this calendar year. And the government has been trying to strong arm British business into backing its (laughs) approach, hasn't it? Nobody I've met thinks this has been a great idea, but basically an official in Number 10 Downing Street has been writing to um, FTSE 100 companies and others asking them to write a letter of support and the government's Brexit strategy. I mean, the argument has a number of flaws from business point of view. First of all, they don't really know what the government's Brexit strategy is. And secondly, do they want to be giving what appears to be a blank cheque to the government before they know exactly what the government has in mind? But the other thing is, why did anybody in Downing Street think this was going to be a good idea? It was inevitably going to leak that they were trying to strong-arm business into doing this. And in parenthesis, this is an approach which they've eschewed ever since Theresa May became Prime Minister. I mean, they've gone out of their way to not have these kinds of letters from business, which they thought were counterproductive and alienated the kind of voters they were trying to woo. So business have looked at this and think, well, why should we help her out now? David? Looking at this from both a political point of view and a technical point of view, it's important to remember what this bill does not do. This bill is supposed to just take the country up to the exit date and its immediate aftermath. It's just a tidying up bill, supposedly. It's for arrangements of withdrawal, which may or may not involve a a transition arrangement. It's to make sure that we can carry law over. What this bill does not cover is the ultimate relationship between the UK and EU. So any politician that's thinking, oh, let's use this bill to try and keep the UK in the single market or within the customs union as a permanent thing, this isn't a piece of legislation for that. That argument will be down the road. That will be a different piece of legislation. There's nothing in this bill which directly deals with the long-term relationship between the UK and EU. One last question on a matter of substantive policy as opposed to procedure. The other big event, George, this week was the leaking of a Home Office paper on post-Brexit immigration policy that proposed tougher hurdles to work in the UK for all but the highest skilled EU migrants. And it's fair to say the response of British business again, let alone the EU27, was lukewarm, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. And the restrictions that are intended to be put in place after the transition period has alarmed a number of employers, particularly those who employ people in lower skilled jobs. So the British Hospitality Association said it could be catastrophic for hotels. The National Farmers Union said it could disrupt entire food supply chains. So there's a lot of concern about this. And Theresa May is convinced that low-skill immigration drives down wage levels in parts of the economy and needs to be controlled. The problem is the measures they're proposing in this draft paper, for example, salary caps or restrictions to two years of work permits or the rest, it could actually choke off a supply of labour that the British economy depends on. The one thing we should say, of course, is this was a very early draft of the paper. And people in the Home Office tell me that it looked like it had been drafted by officials who thought they were still working for Theresa May rather than the considerably more liberal Amber Rudd. And what we're seeing now is a concerted effort by liberal-minded ministers led by Chancellor Philip Hammond, Deputy Prime Minister, de facto Damien Green, to try and water it down and basically make it a more palatable set of proposals by the time we see it in its white paper form sometime in the next few weeks. Clearly that story has a long way to run. And now on to the Labour Party. Last month, Labour began to abandon the constructive ambiguity on Brexit that it cultivated to its advantage during the general election campaign. In August, 
Labour's spokesman on Brexit, Keir Starmer, announced that Labour would seek a transitional deal between Britain and the EU that maintains the same basic terms that the UK currently enjoys. This would include remaining within the Single Market and Customs Union during the period of transition. This week, in an interview with the FT, Mr Starmer appeared to go further, saying that the UK should consider staying in a customs union indefinitely, if that turned out to be best for the British economy. Jim Pickard, you and George Parker talked to Mr Starmer this week. He's gone further than any of his Labour colleagues in sketching a possible end destination for Britain post-Brexit, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. So the big moment that everyone recognised as a big shift in Labour's position was that Observer interview about three weeks ago. And that was the point where he talked about the transition deal and how he would like it if Britain stayed in the customs union and single market for two, three, four years, however long the transition period will be. But the new bit that he said to us this week is that beyond that, and beyond 21, 22, he hadn't really been talking about much earlier. What he's now saying is that beyond that, there could be quite good reasons for staying in the customs union indefinitely. And that comes down to mathematical calculation of will we be better off if we stay where we are and do deals through the EU or leaving and doing deals on our own as people like Liam Fox would like to do. And he is saying the proposition that third-party trade deals are going to be immediately available and will compensate for any loss of trade with the EU is an untested proposition. So he's sounding very dubious about the idea of us leaping out and doing our own deals. And that puts him in a very similar place to Treasury officials and Philip Hammond, who are actually working on a piece of research to that effect, which is, can you make up for the huge amount of trade we do with the EU just like that by cutting deals with South Korea or New Zealand or whoever else? Miranda, we'll come back to the question of the end state in a moment. But Labour has been shedding the ambiguity of its previous position on Brexit by degrees over the past few weeks. How effective or clarifying do you think this repositioning has been? You're quite right to say that they've been edging step by step away from a really quite Eurosceptic stance from particularly John McDonnell in the Labour Party leadership right after the election, towards this Keir Starmer position, which is way more nuanced about where the UK might eventually end up. I'm not sure one can say that there's total clarity now, to be fair, because it does seem to be a journey, a phrase that Jeremy Corbyn is very happy to use about his own politics all the time. And there's clearly an internal battle been going on, and it will continue. For example, the TUC and the big unions seem to have managed behind the scenes to exert a lot of power to try and make sure the Labour Party actually does propose what Corbyn said on the day after the election, which was we want a Brexit for jobs. If you're going to have a Brexit for jobs, you've got to pay serious attention to these issues like whether the UK stays inside the customs union because so much business and so much employment depends upon it. But of course, the position could shift further. And you suspect that within the Labour Party, people like Chakaramuna and the very pro-Remain MPs who principally represent urban areas and, you know, London, the southeast, could try and shift the position even further. But there will be pushback from Labour MPs in Brexit constituencies. Jim, I spoke to a Labour MP in one such constituency who was slightly alarmed by this repositioning. Are you hearing similar chat? Yeah, I think. One way to look at this is that I think Tony Blair once said that every time you make a political decision, you shed support and therefore constructive ambiguity, especially on something as complicated as Brexit, where the man in the street doesn't really care about the fine detail. So every time you appear to be moving quite hard in one direction, you shed one side or the other. 
to be fair to Keir Starmer, I think a lot of it was unions pointing out that jobs could be lost if Labour just sits on the sidelines and watches the Tory government immerse itself in a world of pain. And even with this new position, it is still slightly ambiguous and therefore they can still inflict wounds on the Tory government as we go through the legislative process in the coming months. Miranda referred just now to internal tensions and disagreements inside Labour over Mm. this evolving position. And as you say, Miranda, it's still evolving. Jim, there are unresolved questions of internal Labour politics here, aren't there? It's not clear, for instance, that Mr Starmer is speaking for other colleagues or that this is settled policy. Barry Gardner, the spokesman on trade, for example, seems to take a very different view on membership of the customs union. Exactly. And on one level, you can ask yourself the question of whether Barry Gardner is worried about uh, Labour's position putting Barry Gardner out of a job, because as a lot of our listeners will know, if we stay in the customs union, we can't strike our own trade deals. And therefore, an international trade secretary or a shadow international trade secretary is a slightly pointless entity. But to be fair to Barry, the argument he's making is that if we do stay in the customs union, but are outside the single market, we end up with a deal similar to Turkey, which is not considered a universal success. And in fact, he's called it a disaster not that long ago. And then meanwhile, we have other people. Tom Watson is still the deputy leader of the party, even though he's completely outside the Corbyn Easter tent, saying, yeah, maybe we could stay in the single market and customs union forever. And then the man himself at the heart of the party, the leader himself, Jeremy Corbyn, on the day that Keir Starmer changed Labour's position, where was Jeremy? He was on a tour in Scotland. And if you looked at his Twitter feed, and I don't know whether he's the guy writing it or whether he has henchmen to do it, but it was all about his visit to some tartan shop and rock against racism. And it was about all sorts of things under the sun. But there was nothing at all about the EU or Brexit. Miranda, this is a rather unusual position, isn't it, where various shadow ministers seem to be freelancing and developing their own versions of what might or might not become party policy on Brexit. Well, indeed, and they might be able to keep this deafening silence from the leader going and let Keir Starmer run the show on Brexit if it were not, unfortunately, for the awkward fact of the party conference season being about to start because Jeremy Corbyn is going to have to do all the rounds of interviews. He's going to have to make his leader's speech at least once. Sometimes there are even other subsidiary leaders' interventions at conference. So he is going to have to address the crisis facing the country, which is Brexit. And of course, we know that in terms of his past and his core beliefs, in his gut, Jeremy Corbyn is a Eurosceptic of the left. So his heart will not be in Keir Starmer's softening position. But I think more significantly, there'll be a lot of moderate, soft left Labour MPs who are nervous as well. After the election, I went to several of these kind of post-mortems of what had happened in the election. And there were non-Corbynite MPs, a lot of them representing places in the North East, places in the Midlands, which had voted to leave. They're staring death in the face. And Jim's absolutely right. You make a choice, you alienate some part of your coalition of support. But this is actually a kind of existential question for the Labour Party. Does it become a metropolitan, urban, young, pro-EU party? And does it therefore abandon a whole bunch of seats in the North and the Midlands? Jim. And yes, those concerns are very real. And a lot of Labour MPs in the North and the Midlands, I think 35 of them went to see the leadership yesterday. I think they went to see Keir Starmer and say, why are we voting against the repeal bill? It makes us look like Brexit saboteurs. And although some of them may not vote against the Labour whip, some may abstain on Monday. Those concerns are real because their voters want Brexit by majority and anything that appears to be throwing grit into the wheels is risky. But then the counter argument against that is that if you look at what happened in June, when it came down to it, a lot of voters 
in those northern Midlands, Heartland seats in Wales. They looked at the alternatives and the alternatives were UKIP, which is kind of comedy party on its last legs. They looked at the Tories and that kind of you don't vote Tory attitude if you live in the northeast or in the Welsh valleys. We thought it was starting to shift back in the spring, but it's in people's blood in a lot of these places and it didn't move the dial there at all. And also, I'm going back on myself here slightly, but the other interesting thing from the perspective of of those Labour MPs is that we all expected that the Lib Dems would pick up a lot of vote from people desperate to stay in the EU. What seemed to have happened is that voters made a reasonably rational choice, which was the Lib Dems are diehard Remainers, but they're tiny. We would rather go with Labour, whatever it does, as long as it gives us a slightly softer Brexit than the Tories. This is the argument that people like Chukramuna have been making, that all these voters came on board despite the issues with the Labour leadership because they saw the Labour Party as the best hope of softening Brexit in some way, if not getting out of it. So that's why they will be pleased with this shift in the position. I think it is encouraging to those like me who are instinctively Remain and would like to see a softer Brexit as possible precisely because the Labour ranks seem to have abandoned a position they've held since the election, which was that Labour unity is the most important thing facing the country, when, of course, Brexit is the most important thing facing the country. Let's just go back to the question of the balance of forces inside the Parliamentary Labour Party. Jim, the fact that Labour is whipping its MPs to vote against the EU withdrawal bill suggests that the leadership is behind Mr Starmer in the shift that he's driving here. Yeah, I mean, he is, after all, the shadow... Brexit secretary and I think the ultimate decision there was it's a chance to inflict some embarrassment on the government we might as well take it I think they quite rightly see a Tory government where morale has been shattered constituency MPs are very worried about what happened in June particularly among young voters and therefore we're going to see Labour hounding the government regardless of what they might privately believe endlessly between now and the next general election. Now, Labour doesn't have the numbers to shoot the bill down, but it will seek amendments. What sort of amendments do you think it's looking to to make to the withdrawal bill? Before we get on to the amendments, the first slightly techie issue that we're looking at right now is the programme motion, which will be voted on on Monday. And this sets the number of days that the committee stage will debate the repeal bill. And they've only given it eight days in the Commons, which if you look at the Maastricht Treaty, it had 23. And there was a bit of a sort of speculation around Portcullis House the last few days. Would Tories, they wouldn't vote against the repeal bill, but might they abstain or vote against their own government on the programme motion, this techie thing? It looks like that probably won't happen, but it's one to watch between now and Monday night. And then when it comes to the amendments, I think there are probably around half a dozen areas where the Labour leadership are going to try and push the government. They include the Henry VIII powers, pushing things through on secondary legislation. They include the devolved administrations. So is there a kind of power grab at the expense of Holyrood? And then other things that might pop up include the transition deal. They might try and force the government to be clear on what the transition consists of. And then other things that you might see happening are are slipping in Eurotom, trying to push the government to remain under the European nuclear regulator. But it's a three-dimensional chess game, this, or Rubik's Cube, or whatever you want to call it, because they need to join forces with the SNP and the Plaid Cymru, who are, of course, their opponents politically, and Tory MPs as well on the back benches. And even though there is quite a reasonable number of Tory MPs who are very strong Europhiles, they are really cautious about doing anything that helps Jeremy Corbyn inflict political pain on their own party. And even though you've heard a lot of tough talk from people like Dominic Grieve and Anna Subri, when it actually comes to it, if you look at some of the votes we had back in January, February, around the time of the Article 50 bill, there was a lot of rebellious talk. There wasn't that much rebellion. 
Miranda, let's go back to look at the kite that Mr. Starmer was flying in his interview with Jim and George. Theresa May talks of establishing a deep and special relationship with the European Union after Brexit. Do you think that requires the kind of deal and the indefinite membership of the customs union that Mr. Starmer has sketched out? Well, he's been quite careful, Keir Starmer, to say that he's not talking about necessarily the UK staying inside the customs union, i.e. where we are at the moment, but to be inside a customs union with the European Union. He's repeated this phrase since the weekend, in fact. So it's still uncertain whether it's actually achievable. That's really important to note. I think it's very significant what he said in the interview that Jim and George did with him, because as you say, he moved beyond this being just about the interim Mm. arrangements onto where we might finally end up in terms of the relationship. But it will be absolutely crucial. I think where he needs to, Keir Starmer, expand a bit on this is actually making the link between why these technical arrangements for the interim and even after are so important to prosperity and jobs. He's a very techie politician, isn't he? He's a lawyer. He's former head of the CPS. He deals with the nitty gritty. And somebody needs to explain the wider Labour vision of this Brexit for jobs and why a customs union, if not the customs union, might matter. I totally agree. I think you have a disjunct where you have Keir, who's obsessed, and he's incredibly fluent about the technical details of the legislative process. But it's very easy to get lost, even if you find the stuff quite interesting. If you don't find it interesting, it must sound like gobbledygook. And then on the other side, you have Jeremy Corbyn, who seems totally uninterested. And he repeats these mantras about we want to Brexit for jobs and Brexit for workers. He doesn't seem to give the impression to be that engaged in the nitty gritty or the technicalities of how any of it works. And there's a bit of a gulf where it'd be lovely to have a communicator that could join the dots between the two of them. Sometimes Jeremy Corbyn doesn't seem to know the difference between access to the single market and belonging to the single market, for example. He doesn't really want to talk about it. He may be calculating that voters are not interested in that distinction either. Jim, Mr Starmer told you and George in the interview that he thinks the government will eventually be compelled by the pace of negotiations with the EU to adopt a similar position to his. Do you think he's right about that? Is that where the logic of events will take us? I think quite possibly. Philip Hammond, not that long ago, was talking privately to business leaders about wanting this off-the-shelf model. They've been pretty clear that they're not talking about the EEA. They are talking about basically what we have at the moment, but with a few tweaks and different terminology and all the rest of it. But whether the Philip Hammond forces within the cabinet win out on that argument is kind of anybody's guess. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all the guests for joining me, and thank you to our producer, Anna Dedder. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Thank you for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit 
yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.